Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Welcome to session six of Momentum. Now, if you know what it is to be wronged by another person, you will know how difficult it can be to forgive. Now, God is merciful. He's gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And that's why he is ready to forgive, even when it takes an agony of heart to get there. Today's study is about how to get to forgiveness. We're going to look at how a person can be forgiven by God, how you can forgive yourself, and how we can be ready to forgive others. Most people want to forgive, but some don't know how to get there. And if a great wrong has been done to you, you may feel that forgiveness is impossible. However desirable forgiveness might be, it towers over you and feels like a mountain that you just can't climb. Well, the fifth beatitude is about mercy, and mercy is a stepping stone to forgiveness. God's mercy means that he is always ready to forgive. But think with me for a moment about how and when God forgives. See, God forgives when a wrong has been done, when repentance begins, and he does it because atonement has been made. First, God forgives when a wrong has been done. See, if I were to say to you, I forgive you, you would reasonably say, whatever for? I haven't done anything wrong to you, so what is there for you to forgive? See, forgiveness is only appropriate when a wrong has been done. And when God forgives us, that means that we have wronged him. See, every sin in your life and mine is a personal offense against God. Saul of Tarsus persecuted Christians. But when Christ appeared to him on the Damascus road, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul's violence was against Christians but the sin that he committed was against Jesus Christ. Then God forgives when repentance begins. The story of the prodigal son makes this wonderfully clear. Remember, the son leaves home in rebellion, but when he comes to his senses, he has a change of heart and he begins the long journey home. He doesn't expect much, but he hopes that his father might take him on as a hired servant. The father sees the son from a distance and runs out to meet him. Now that's what God is like. He embraces us with love and with forgiveness at the first sign of our repentance. Repenting is a process that every believer begins, but none of us completes in this life. Our repentance towards God is at best a small part of what it should be. So thank God he forgives us when our repentance begins, not when it is complete. If it were not for this, none of us would ever be forgiven. Now there's something really important to learn here in regard to our forgiving and being reconciled to others. When a person who has wronged you begins to repent, it's time to move toward that person with love and with forgiveness. 
Remember that the father did not sit in the house waiting with folded arms until the son trudged every last step of the way home. At the first sign of the son's return, he ran toward him and embraced him. So you don't have to wait until every aspect of an offence has been owned before you forgive. You don't have a full understanding of the extent of your sins towards God, but God chose to forgive you, not at the end, but at the beginning of your repentance. God forgives when repentance begins. But it's also true that his forgiveness is tied to the beginning of repentance. You see, there's no forgiveness without repentance. And to people who rejected him, Jesus said, I'm going away and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. The principle of forgiveness being given when repentance begins is important when we come to the difficult question of forgiving a person who isn't even sorry for what they've done. I mean, what is your responsibility in a situation where a person has wronged you but shows no awareness of what they've done, takes no responsibility for it, and for that reason may well continue to commit the same sin against someone else in the future. Well, I think that it's important to remember that God does not forgive unrepentant sinners. The Bible tells us that he loves them, and that's what he calls us to do. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Notice God does not say, forgive your enemies, he says, love them, pray for them, because that is what God himself does. Now, third, God forgives because atonement has been made. Think how extraordinarily difficult it is for God to forgive. I mean, when he was creating the world, all he had to do was to speak it into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. But when it came to forgiveness, God could not simply say, let them be forgiven. It was much harder than that. It took God himself entering into our world, taking on human flesh, living that perfect life, shedding his own blood, and laying down that life on the cross. So when someone says, I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, I want to ask, are you really saying that it's easier for God to forgive you than it is for you to forgive yourself? Well, the root problem here is pride. If you say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, what you're really saying is, the blood of Jesus Christ may be good enough for God, but it isn't good enough for me. And that means you're putting yourself above God. So here's how you forgive yourself for the things that bring you guilt and shame today. You say to yourself, if the blood of Jesus Christ is good enough to satisfy the Father in relation to my sin, then it should be good enough to satisfy me. Now we've looked at how God forgives, but how can you be ready to forgive someone who has wronged you? Imagine that you're standing next to a hurdle on a racetrack. You can't jump a hurdle from a standing start. You have to back up and take a run at it. Now think about that picture in relation to your Christian life. It's easy to get focused on one sin or one problem that you want to overcome. 
How can I get over my fear? How can I prevail over this lust? There you are, standing right next to the hurdle, and you can't move forward from that position. You have to begin further back. You have to take a run at it. You have to get some momentum. Now, let's apply this to the challenge of forgiving a wrong that has been done against you. How are you going to get over that hurdle? Everything you need in the run-up is gathered together in Ephesians chapter 4, where God says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, the six strides that will get you to this forgiveness are all laid out in the verses that come immediately before. The first stride is to remember that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. Now, you may have experienced hurts and wounds that are incredibly hard to forgive, but here's what you need to know. No one has had more to forgive than God. Every sin that has ever been committed is a sin against God. But God forgives even the worst sins, and His Spirit now lives in you. Forgiveness may be beyond your capacity, but you can gain momentum in your run at forgiveness by remembering the great truth that the Spirit of the God who forgives is at work in you. The second stride is not to dwell on the injury. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. Now, bitterness, wrath, and anger all come from nursing a grievance. So someone's wronged you, and your mind keeps rehearsing it over and over again. You keep thinking about it, how wrong it was, how hurtful it is. But every time you think about it, you're stoking a fire in your soul. Bitterness and anger are fires that need to be fed. So stop feeding them. When your mind goes back to that stuff, say to yourself, there are better things to fill my mind with than this. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, set your mind on something better. You have the power to do this because God's Spirit lives in you. The third stride towards forgiveness is don't fight and quarrel. Now, when a relationship's in trouble, Fighting over who did what will only make it worse. The Lord's servant, the scripture says, must not quarrel. Quarreling stokes the fires of bitterness and anger, and it puts you further from the forgiveness that you're trying to cultivate. So Paul says, let clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Clamor and slander involve dredging up and passing on the faults and the failings of another person. So to put away clamor and slander means that I'm not to vent about another person or to badmouth them to others. And malice is the desire that a person who has hurt you will get what they deserve. So putting away malice means that I'm not to comfort myself by savoring the thought of what they deserve. Dwelling on the pain of past injuries will get in the way of forgiveness, and it'll steal your momentum. So if you're going to take a run at the hurdle of forgiveness, you have to get clamor and slander 
and malice out of the way. The fourth stride is to have compassion on the person who has hurt you. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Now, this is especially important with the person who has wronged you and still has no idea of what he or she has done. They haven't taken ownership. They have no sense of responsibility. They're blind to what they're doing and to the pain that they're causing. Well, if this person is blind, you should have compassion. The Bible tells us that Jesus became the merciful, tender-hearted, compassionate high priest that he is through what he suffered. You see, suffering can produce hardness of heart, but it can also produce great tenderness. And if you have experienced great pain through the sins of another person, use your pain as fuel for compassion. When Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They didn't even know they were lost. The person who has sinned against you may be just like that. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Then the fifth stride is to realize that you will need the forgiveness of others. Forgiving one another. See, God does not say here simply that you should forgive people who have hurt you. He says we should forgive one another. There will be things that you need to forgive in others, and there will be things that others need to forgive in you. Here's something that you'll find to be true. It's impossible to say from the heart, Lord, have mercy on me, and then at the same time to refuse mercy to another person from your heart. Realizing your own need of continuing forgiveness will help you to take another stride towards forgiving others. The last stride is to savor your forgiveness in Jesus Christ, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. See, God's forgiveness is the model and the motive for our forgiving other people. So the apostle draws our attention to the way in which we have been forgiven by God. Think about how God has forgiven you. Turn this over in your mind. God has forgiven me in Jesus Christ. He did this gladly and freely and fully. This forgiveness is undeserved. It's irreversible and it's eternal. And he did it in love and mercy out of an agony of heart that was shrouded in the darkness of Calvary that is beyond anything that I will ever fully understand. Savor your forgiveness in Christ. Appreciate it. Enjoy it. Let this priceless gift of God that you have received move your heart to worship and to wonder and to love and praise. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So here are six strides toward forgiveness. Practice the six strides and your seventh will take you over the hurdle of forgiveness. Even when a person has hurt you badly and is completely unaware of what he or she has done, if you practice these strides, you will be ready to forgive at any moment. Forgiveness will be in your heart, and you'll be ready to place it in the hands of the one who has wronged you whenever he or she is ready to receive the gift.